This is the real stuff right here, listeners. This is, this this is, is the, the real, real shit. Stuff. We could talk about the bigness of God. We can talk about symbols and idols. But at the end of the day, you still got to order chicken tenders for your daughter. That's exactly right. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? How does one then differentiate in this model from what is simply a symbol of the ground of being, uh, an honest, creative attempt of a human person to reach out and know God as best as we can, between that and an idol? Mm, That's a great question. I'm going to answer it. One bit of ground clearing. This is why Tillich is just one post-theist. And he bequeaths a language to post-theism. He doesn't really bequeath like a tradition because Tillich is a post-theist in a very different way than Bonhoeffer is a post-theist or Dorothe Zola is a post-theist or Caputo. So Bonhoeffer is not interested in ontology. The ground of being, you know, like Bonhoeffer's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, like I don't care about that. Zola is the same way. Zola sticks with Bonhoeffer on that one. Caputo is not interested in being either. Caputo, Caputo thinks that Tillich is ultimately right, but Caputo thinks that there's something even more um, basic than the ground of being, and, and Caputo has his own thoughts on that. And so not every post-theist, not every post-theist would jive with the idol language, right? Like, like Dorothy Zola wouldn't, and uh, Bonhoeffer would. Caputo, Caputo would in a very particular way, right? Like he would in that he's he's just trying to say what's true. He doesn't have like a confessional stake, you know, kind of in the whole thing. But like the difference between an idol and a true symbol of God has to do, uh, according to Tillich, has to do with the kind of power that the that the symbol or idol in question is alive with. Tillich's, um, this is why hermeneutics is so interesting. I did a comp in hermeneutics, Nick, where like, that was like my non-religious studies comp. Like I had to take a non-religion exam. And so I did hermeneutics. I spent time with Dr. Bouchard, who is a Tillichian, reading all of these writers who write about what we do when we think about stuff, you know, (laughs) right? Like what is... What happens when we think, you know, or what happens when we read or what happened, like, like, what is all of that? By the way, the father of hermeneutics in the West, Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher wrote the first piece of Western hermeneutics that was self-consciously hermeneutics. Like, like the Schleiermacher was like, that's what I'm going to do. Schleiermacher wins again. He wins again. He wins again, that bastard. That bastard. It's really nice. He does it, by the way, because he's realized he's entered into a world in which he cannot guarantee that people know how to read the scripture. And so he has to invent hermeneutics in order to figure out how to teach how to read the Bible. <laughs> it just seems funny. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like, I think it's kind of funny. Um, and I've read it. Like I've read his lectures as I had to for this class. And honestly – they're cool. Like I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That is kind of what happens when we try to read stuff, <laughs> right? But it's great. But uh, but so Tillich's sort of theology of the symbol all turns on his ontology, and this is why, even though Tillich bequeaths 
this symbol stuff to post-theism, it's never done in the exact way. So because Tillich thinks that all of existence is sort of throbbing, right? Like is sort of alive as beings. Oh God, you got, we got to come up with a better term. <laughs> right. Throbbing uh, is, uh, I was going to say pulsating and that doesn't help either. Cool. Um, is alive. It's alive, Nick. It's, it's, it is alive. It's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Because, because the power of being, which is another word for the ground of being that Tillich will use sometimes, because the power of being is, um, uh, uh, is expressed in all existent beings. Our symbols, like the stuff we, we construct in order to both understand the power of being and, and the various things that are, um, also is alive with this stuff. Because it because a symbol is a thing. Like Tillich's like, it's a thing. It doesn't just exist in our minds. It 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 has it it is something that we might creatively produce, but it but in order for it to be a symbol, it has to be alive to do stuff to us, right? That's why uh, sometimes we use the 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 American flag as like a good example of a of a Tillichian symbol of America. The American flag is alive with what it symbolizes, uh, and we experience that in lots of different ways. We experience that as something that many citizens are compelled to stand for, right? Like we experience it as um, uh, uh, colonized people experience it as demonic, right? Like, oh shit, here it comes, you know? Um, and but and so because it's alive, it has power to do stuff, and and it has power to continue to symbolize what it has given it, what that which um, its power has been given to it, uh, and it can die. You know that's Tillich's whole thing, and it can die one because can it can certainly hope. One can certainly hope uh, it can die because it's alive. It has being in an important way, and an idol. The only difference between a symbol and an idol is an idol upon close inspection, upon the um, our uh, invoking the Protestant principle, which is just that all things are subject to the critique of idols. Um, an idol uh, is alive with something that is not the ground of being. That's that's all what it is, and so this is what is so. James Cone in the Black Theology of Liberation, James Cone is a Talikian, at least at the beginning of his career, and is able to say the white god of the white racists is not a god. It's an idol because it symbolizes not the ground of being, but white racism. It is alive not with the power of existence, but with the power of whiteness. And so it can both symbolize whiteness and has and has the power of whiteness at its disposal. If it could symbolize the ground, if, if it did symbolize the ground of being, that would mean two things. That would mean either that that its its ability to symbolize whiteness has been destroyed. And so no longer will white people see it as effectively symbolizing their power, right? Um, it either means that or it means that whiteness 
is the ground of being. But Tillich would say, but that is an idol. <laughs> That's obviously an idol uh, to anyone who is, for Tillich, to anyone who has um, done the proper formation as, say, a Christian or as uh, somebody in his sort of, you know, in the way he's teaching it. Follow-up question. Sure. <laughs> this is how the conversation is just going to go today, Ethan. <laughs> Everybody gets to see in real time the process of you teaching me stuff. <laughs> I'm following, following mm. all of this, staying in this vein, just poking holes at it again a little bit more. Sure. Can a symbol of the ground of being be, I'll say the word perverted, into a idol? I'm thinking primarily about the cross. Right, mm, sure. Uh, particularly through the lens of white supremacy, right, mm. and colonialism, mm. and how the cross is seen colonially, and how you know the KKK burned crosses to run black people out of town, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As just like a really, like a a modern history, more recent history example. Right. And that still lives in our modern consciousness. And it's still a part of the symbol there. Uh, and, and it's it's weird. And it's a it's a symbol that makes me ask the question because it is complicated, because mm -hmm. it is also a symbol utilized by the groups oppressed by that symbol. Also, yeah. the cross as like the most complex question about this line between symbol or idol Mm -hmm. can human beings usurp a symbol? I guess the symbol comes from us in the first place, doesn't it? It's not like God necessarily gave us the symbol, although you could argue yeah. that with different stories in the Bible, but, mm -hmm. but the symbol ultimately comes from us. So what we're perverting is more perverting our own symbol uh, for the divine, the mm -hmm. ground of being, however you want to call it. Right. Am I on the, am I on the right track? Sorry. I'm literally just working it out in real time. No, no, you're, you are on the right track. This is good. Um, cause I asked that because you want, we always want there to be a physical symbol, something we can look at or, or, or whatever. Um, and we use crosses a lot in the tradition. And I know a lot of times this conversation comes up around, um, the United Methodist logo in particular, having the, the tongues of fire on the cross, which don't represent that moment in history in America, they represent the coming together of the two denominations to form the United Methodist Church. Fine, whatever. If a cross on fire is invoking in the public consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, the image of the Ku Klux Klan, isn't sure. that an issue? And doesn't it cease to be a symbol of the ground of being at that point and become an idol? And if that's the case, when do we decide to stop using it as a symbol for our faith? Right? Mm. Yeah. 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 That's a great question. I would say that Tillich, Tillich, I think, has a pretty robust sense of how, of the subjective element to hermeneutics as well. Right. Like different groups and different people interpret symbols and in, in uh, a whole myriad of ways. And Tillich is like, yeah, that's of course, of course. There's a Methodist theologian that I admire named Carl Michelson who I think I've talked to you about before. He's, he's done work with Japanese Christian theology and some different stuff. 
uh, he is a, not a Tillichian, but he is really familiar with Tillich because he's an existentialist. So like Carl, Carl Michelson, sort of Tillich is also an existentialist and sort of runs in a similar field in that way. And one of Michelson's critiques of Tillich is that Tillich, Tillich decides, Tillich makes a choice in his system to stick with ontology. And Michelson's like, I wonder if his, history would be better. I wonder if thinking about the faith historically, uh, and for Michelson, he he means that in not just in like this sort of historical critical method way, but in this sort of using the language of event rather than being. And because history for Michelson has a lot to do, it's history is hermeneutics all the way down. History is symbology all the way down, right? Like what is history? Well, in order to answer that, we have to first start with what you think history means, you know, and what, what we think um, texts mean and meaning making it does and, and, and who we are and stuff like that. I, I think that he's onto something, but I think that Tillich just has a different sort of project in mind. The reason I bring that up is because if Tillich maybe spent more time thinking about that question, he'd be able to answer your critique a little better, right? Because then Tillich can can spend time going, well, of course, there's going to be multiple interpretations for this symbol, because that's just what it means to think historically. History is, you know, multivalent and has lots and lots of things that happen and lots of perspectives and interpretations on one thing. So imagine a million things all intertwining. Anyway, I think that the last thing you said, like, when do we stop using it for our faith? I think Tillich has a very clear answer, actually. And for Tillich, it's when it dies. And and we will know when it dies because no good will come. Like, the no group, no Christian, no one will be able to see the the ground of being in the cross, um, and and see that the cross symbolizes that. Uh, and and for Tillich, Tillich is fine with that. Like Tillich is a Christian for sure, but Tillich holds his confession in a very particular way, right? Like Tillich is not. Tillich is okay with maybe one day there being at least an unrecognizable form of Christianity that is still oriented around the ground of being. He's okay with that because of because of his understanding of how culture works and 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 the contingency of Christian symbols, right? Like and and I think that Tillich would want to remind us, um, and I'm not saying you're saying this, Tillich would want to remind us that that um, even the whole point of Christianity is not to protect Christianity, right? Like Christianity, if it is worth a damn, always points to new being and the ground of being. Like that's sort of Tillich's way of talking about new being is like redemption and the ground of being is, you know, God, right? Like it's about things transforming and becoming closer to their source, right? And are, and and human creatures being reconstituted in light of, you know, of estrangement going away and stuff like that. It's still a Christian story that Tillich is telling, but it's a Christian story that's that's sort of passes through this system, right? Uh, that Tillich is trying to weave together. And so I think that he would want us to have less anxiety, maybe 
like like over like protecting some of those symbols. And I think you would just say, yeah, symbols can be corrupted. And one day it's possible that the cross will be so dead that it cannot symbolize the ground of being anymore. Have less anxiety from the man who coined the term for me. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, the the ultimate concern. <laughs> yes, faith is ultimate concern. That's faith is ultimate concern. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. Uh, I like when you talk about this stuff. I have one last question for you about this topic, and then we can sure. either just end or do whatever you want to. My last question is. What does this have to do with your dissertation and how's that going? <laughs> uh, it doesn't have to do with my dissertation. Some of some of the stuff uh, I think is helping me think about my dissertation in sharper ways. Some of it. Um, Tillich himself is probably not going to make an appearance in a lot of my writing, but I'm working on a second like writing project right now. And by working on it, I mean I'm like jotting ideas down and creating a list of stuff as it appears, as it comes to me for a um, at least one essay, like a one large essay on um, thinking about God eschatologically. And so what I mean by that is, is like placing the kind of depths of God's being at the end and one of my ideas, I have a couple of reasons for that, but uh, one of one of them is just sober reading of God as Alpha and Omega. If God is Omega, we should be uh, treating that with a little bit more respect, and and so we can we can I think should be more comfortable saying things like, "I'm not entirely sure what God is yet," you know, <laughs> and mm. that's okay. Because God comes to the end. Does that mean that God changes? That's not really what I'm saying either. I, I think it's more an argument from like human knowing. I, I, I essentially buy the post-theistic critique of, of theological knowledge. And I want to I want to stick with that. That's a good point. I can say more about that because I have a little bit more to say, but I don't want to interrupt you. No, I was just going to say it's a good thought. I really like it so far. <laughs> so all of this is actually becoming and working out to be a project about a theology of God's absence. And uh, uh, the reason for this, this is you are getting the first real real things about this ultimately. Oh, yeah. Me and the thousands of listeners. <laughs> Thousands. The millions and millions and millions. Yeah. So I think that I'm really, this is partially coming from a personal space. My relationship to God, you know, I, I, I guess I did say with God, my relationship to God for my whole life has ultimately been marked by absence. That doesn't mean that I don't think God is real uh, or that I don't have faith. I, I actually think faith is only possible if we know we don't know you know if god is real or not right if we don't like like there has to be real doubt there has to be real unknowability yeah and so and so in order for faith to make sense but because i think that uh, because absence has become so important to me and and has become kind of this thing that i i've realized is is 
sort of haunts me as well. I, uh, I've been really trying to think through how to talk about God's absence as a starting point for doing theology in general and like thinking about the doctrine of God and all this stuff without resolving it too quickly at the end, right? Like, I don't want to start with absence so that I can rush to presence. That's right. That's not no, what I'm neither. trying to do. And I have some ideas on how to do that. And a number of these ideas are from post-theists, are from Dorothy Zola and, and her work on Christ as filling the role of God and the role of human beings. Um, uh, a, a Brazilian sort of radical post-theist, theopoetic guy named Ruben Alves talks about God as uh, absence and, and then and then likens it to the Eucharist where he's like, he's like, the biggest scandal of the Eucharist is that there's clearly no God there, <laughs> right? It's just fucking bread, guys, you know, like, like, and we can, we can, we can recite spells over and over in our minds to try to pretend like God is there, but God isn't there because it's just fucking bread. And, and Ruben Alves is like, but, but that's okay. Like he's, I, he's, I'm like, I'm not trying to conjure presence when there's absence. What Ruben Alves suggests, which I find really compelling is that, um, is that God's absence is so thick. It's such a, it's such a white elephant in the room. It's such a it's such an obvious absence that it's uh, that it becomes the presence of an absence that that is a uh, it's an absence so magnificent and complete that that we all go shit this is weird you know <laughs> like, like, yeah it comes back around to being tangible <laughs> yeah yeah but it's still absence it's still absent. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, no but it's like that silence you can feel i yeah. know what you're saying and uh and so i'm working out this idea there's some other folks too but i'm working out this idea of um sort of reframing the trinity a little bit and uh, you know, one of the orthodox or creedal ways in which we talk about the Trinity is to talk about the Father as the uh, uh, talk about the monarchy of the Father, and and in that sense, we we mean that in the pure Greek construct way, monoarche, one source. That's all what that means. And so, like the Father is in creedal sort of Greek and 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 interpretations of the Trinity, and we would largely consider this orthodox, we would say that, of course, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. Of course, that's true. Um, but as Gregory of Nyssa reminds us, but even though they are, of course, equal, and nobody's saying that they're not, at least no orthodox person is saying they're not, maybe some dirty Gnostics are, but we don't give a shit about them. Like, because, because they're all equal, that does not change the fact that they have different sorts of relationships to each other. And the son's relationship in the Trinity is of a relationship of being begotten. And so the son's relationship to the father is a, a relationship of, of source and thing that comes about from the source, right? Uh, this is complicated. Like it's not, it's not as though Gregory of Nyssa is, Gregory of Nyssa has real arguments for this, but like that's sort of the quick and dirty version of it. The father's relationship to the, to the other members of the Trinity is one of the sharing of the father's essence. 
So the father shares, the son receives. These are these are just the modes with which the Trinity is the Trinity. I wonder if Tillich were here, Tillich would say, yes, yes, we might say that the father is the infinite depths of the ground of being. We might say that. I wonder if we can reframe it eschatologically and we can say that the father just hasn't arrived, that the father is the infinite depths of the eschaton, that the father is the omega, the the um, the the infinite perhaps of God, um, that the Son and the Spirit still receive their being from. That's kind of what I'm thinking. You better be careful. They're going to accuse you of being a process theist, uh, like they did to Miguel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought about that. I I don't want. I it's not that I think that God is in process. I think that God is not here. Right. Yeah, like, like, and well, what is the Son and the Spirit doing? Well, the Son and the Spirit are here, but the Son and the Spirit are here in a similar way that um, the Father is here, conspicuous by their absence. And so, what is the Spirit? Well, maybe we can say, you know, this is this is the part that I haven't thought thought out fully yet. I have some ideas, but maybe we could say that the Spirit is um, proceeds from the Father uh, as the cry for the absent God. And so part of what the Spirit does, part of what it means for the Spirit to be among us, is that we have is that creation has been um, stoked, has been provoked, has been uh, riled up, we might say, agitated like a wild goose, maybe, um, with the uh, uh, um, desire for the absent God. And maybe then the son, Jesus of Nazareth, is that human who says, I'll do it. Not in a, I will be God, but in a, somebody has to fucking do this, you know, <laughs> because, because God is not here. And, and so somebody has to do it. Somebody has to step up and, and um, do what Dorothy Zola says the son does, play the role of God. And the reason why I'm using Dorothy Zola here isn't because I'm like, I don't, I don't kind of, I don't kind of think Zola's whole scheme is necessarily correct, like in how she presents it. But Zola gestures in her book that, that the son, that Jesus does this temporarily. She does, he, Jesus does this until God shows up. And then Jesus doesn't have to um, play the role of God anymore. Jesus uh, sort of, it's, it's unclear at Zola if Jesus disappears or not, but like, we may say that Jesus's role as representative goes away um, in the same way that Jesus's role as human representative goes away. Cause that's Zola's other move. Zola reads the incarnation as Jesus representing both human beings and God at the same time. And for, for Zola, Jesus ceases to do these things when God shows up because when God shows up is also when human beings show up. And so there's an essentially eschatological dimension to God and Zola's way of, and Zola's sort of post-theism, where, where Zola just says, oh, there is no God right now. 
And then everybody's like, well, how can you say that? And Zola just shrugs and says, there is no God right now. Just like how there is no kingdom of God right now. But maybe God arrives when the kingdom arrives. And maybe the kingdom's arrival and God's arrival are the exact same event. That is just a framework I'm using. I'm not entirely sure I'm putting my stamp of approval on that. But that framework of eschatology, right, that's, I think, the key to my argument. The key to my argument has something to do with God is not here and God arrives eschatologically, which means sometime, someday, at the end of all things, God is here and God will be all in all. But right now, currently, what we have are symbols and flashes and I'm using two, can I, I'll tell you two more things and I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm using two biblical images that I did not expect to use, but I've been led to use them by different sources and different things as I've been writing. The first one is the story of Jesus's transfiguration. And I argue that, that Jesus's transfiguration should be something of the blueprint or the model for how we are to understand sort of the experience of God now. Jesus is transfigured. I think this is very obvious in the scripture. Jesus's transfiguration is the breaking in of the future. Because Jesus is transfigured as what he appears like in the book of Revelation. Hmm. And so and I'm not necessarily saying that those warlike images are what we need to adopt, but the principle, right, I think is there. The transfiguration is in some ways us catching a glimpse of the future God that has not arrived. That God, we might say that this that the eschatological God or, you know, the, the, the triune God flashes in to the story, into the present, just for a moment, not because he's arrived, but, but because there is something of a foreshadowing happening. There's something of a, there's something of, of, of the future that appears in the present, sort of like what happens when you have a kid. Having a kid means that the future is in the present because I look at my children and I don't, necessarily just see what they look like now my my being is is a drawn into a poetic move a theopoetic move of imagining and then suddenly we might say that adrea is transfigured before me as her future self whatever that looks like i think something like that is happening in the transfiguration and i think that that's the first image that I would use. The other reason why I think this is this works, and this is a really biblical argument in a strange way for me. The other reason why I think this works is because I don't know how else to interpret the passage that is in all four gospels in which Jesus says he does not know when the eschaton arrives. How else am I supposed to interpret that? If creedal, if normal creedal Trinity stuff is real, 
is the way it's supposed to be, that the Father shares his essence with the Son and the Spirit, that, that Jesus and the Father are one in this way. I'm not saying Jesus and the Father aren't one. I'm just saying that they might not be one in this way. If Jesus and the Father are one in this way, that, that they share the divine essence and that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and yada, 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 how is it possible that Jesus does not know in the eschaton is? It's it's not a mystery. It's a flat out contradiction. But if the father is eschatological, then there's no way the son actually can know when the eschaton comes. That really is just the father's knowledge because the father is not here. There you go. I think it's fascinating. I can't wait to see where you take it. And what thinkers you dig up to help you. Hmm. My first thought, as you were talking about it all, was, is there a sense in which the spirit can literally just be... <sighs> my my Methodism's going to come out, right? Like, when I think about, like, the forms of divine revelation, the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, right? Hmm. In this framework, why can't those things, the, the means of revelation, essentially be the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, right? Mm. Why why can't – well, I've given you these these teachings, these, these scriptures. We've given you these, this tradition is here now that carries the soul and spirit of it all. Um, I have given you in creation the ability to reason. And to have your own experiences within creation to draw your own conclusions and and share those with each other. Why can't that be the spirit of God? Is that too heretical to say? Mm. Why can't the spirit of God be literally God's spirit? <laughs> like the spirit of what God wants for us to be doing, right? Sure. Spirit, spirit in that, spirit in that, what's the spirit of this text kind of? Yeah, thing, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Like that. What's, what's the spirit of the tradition? What's mm. the spirit of God, right? Like I, to me, could that just be the answer or is it too, I don't even know which heresy it would be off the top of my head, connecting the divine to the creative order too much, right? Sure. Yeah, it, it can. So the problem, it's not really a problem. The essay that I'm thinking of is firstly making like a Trinitarian argument. Like I'm attempting to make an argument about, I'm trying to interpret the Trinity in, in an important way in which I, like I've been saying, like I take this way of thinking about the father as sort of being, maybe Tillich would say ontological, right? Like the, the infinite depths that until it brings us downward, right? So I, I like to say that because I think that's the best way to understand the difference between like Tillich and um, other Christian uh, ontologists who are perhaps similar to Tillich. Like Tillich is different because of the spatial move Tillich makes. Tillich says, Tillich says, yes, God is infinite, like the ocean can be infinite like it feels in that way, the depths of God, the depths of being, right? Whereas God's infinity in other sort of metaphysical schemes 
isn't really spatially understood in that way. I think the spatial analogy makes things very different. I'm not really like that. That's not really what I'm doing. I, I'm trying to say that God really is absent. Like, I'm really trying to say that. And that it doesn't mean he's not real, but it means that rea- the reality of God is both deferred, sort of like the kingdom. Kingdom is already and not yet. That, that it's deferred eschatologically. And what we experience now is, um, is a little bit like poetry. It's a little bit like creation responding poetically to God's absence. Sure. And, and so I think that your idea can be true in the way I'm thinking, but it's not, it would be a separate part of the argument. It would be like the part of the argument that says, oh, okay, well, what does that mean for like the church? Right? Like, what does the spirit right. do when the spirit is among the church? Well, I'll tell you what the spirit does. And it probably does, it uh, says, it does similar things to what you're suggesting. How it works in Trinity, you know, in this sort of speculative mode that I'm thinking through, is uh, what the spirit essentially is, is um, the cry, is the divine, perhaps, is the divine cry of absence, right? There, because because I'm working with this, you know. I think Ruben Malvez is right, the the theopoetic guy, where he says God's absence is so enormous, it's so conspicuous that that we encounter God's absence as a kind of presence, and and God's absence as a kind of presence might be just another word for the Spirit. Okay. Okay. Okay, I think I'm back on board with it. Sorry. I was struggling with just like seeing the the pres- the spirit presence bit, right? Earlier on. It, it, because Christian tradition has basically said that the spirit is God's presence on earth with us here now, right? right. Um uh, I will I will give you my spirit to guide and teach you or whatever the heck we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't know if you were trying to reconcile that still, because I think you can hold a Trinitarian theology with this. Obviously, it's a, you're making a Trinitarian argument, right? But mm. um, accounting for the spirit seemed like the, the weakness, just as you were saying it to me. Sure. But anyway, now you're just starting this off. I think it's really cool. Thanks. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. I just forget we're on a podcast sometimes, and I, yeah. <laughs> I just keep asking questions, and I meander through a thought, and I'm like, oh, wait, this is supposed to be an entertaining audio medium. Uh- <laughs> no, no, it's all People are entertained. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Nick, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomolf, performed by Joe Schomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. 
find us across the internet at WTHIAP or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet. Good luck editing all this, Joe. Yeah, good luck, Joe.